0: This week's show includes details of six murders, including children as young as only nine. If you are likely to find this upsetting or it makes you feel uncomfortable, please don't listen on. One of the most haunted houses in America, if not the world, this previously unassuming property was the scene of a mass murder back in November of 1974, which appears to have kick-started some absolutely horrifying paranormal activity. Including slime oozing from the walls, family members levitating in their bed, and a demonic red-eyed pig monster. After just 28 days, this family fled their new home, and the house on Ocean Avenue in Long Island has lived in infamy ever since. Tonight, join me as we head to the United States of America to the Amityville Horror House. Welcome to episode 20 of how haunted a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet earth i'm rob kirkup author paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of england allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week we visit New York and ask just how haunted is the Amityville Horror House? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. Amityville is located near the town of Babylon in Suffolk County on the south shore of Long Island, New York. It has a population of around 9,500, and every single one of those residents will be only too aware that everyone worldwide has heard of Amityville, and in particular, one house. A house found on Ocean Avenue, where on November 13th, 1974, a horrendous mass murder was carried out in the dead of night, which appears to have left a dark stain on the house, which it said manifests itself as all manner of terrifying paranormal activity. Or, as some other versions of the legend around this evil building would have us believe, The ghosts were always there and it was these malevolent entities that told a 23-year-old man to murder six people as they slept in their beds. Before we look at that terrible night, let's go all the way back to a time when that infamous house didn't yet exist. Settlers from Huntingdon on the north shore of Long Island first visited the area which we now know as Amityville in 1653 due to it being a source of salt hay. A species of cordgrass native to the Atlantic coast of the Americas, which was used in animal feed at the time. Chief Wyandatch, a sachem of the Montaukett Indians, granted the first deed to land in Amityville in 1658. The area was originally called Huntingdon West Neck South. According to village law, the name was changed in 1846 when residents were working to establish its new post office. The meeting turned into Bedlam and one participant was to exclaim, what this meeting needs is some amity. Meetings began being held at St. Mary's Church in 1886. A chapel was built in 1888 by Wesley Ketchum under Reverend James H. Noble, and the church was consecrated in 1889 by Bishop A.N. Littlejohn. In the early 1900s, Amityville was a popular tourist destination with large hotels on the bay and large homes, Sharpshooter Annie Oakley was said to be a frequent visitor, and gangster Al Capone also had a house in the community. Intensive research carried out by the Amityville Historical Society charts the origins of the ill-fated Ocean Avenue property as once having been farmland belonging to a family called the Islands. At the time, they were one of Amityville's most prominent and influential families. On January 14th 1924, Annie Island sold the land. And the existing property which stood upon it to John and Catherine Moynihan, a family of six. The following year, Amityville builder Jesse Purdy was hired, and the existing home at the address was relocated down the street as he set about constructing a brand new five bedroom, three story Dutch colonial house. This is the house that stands there today. When John and Catherine Moynihan died, their daughter, Eileen Fitzgerald, moved in with her own family. She lived there until October the 17th, 1960, when John and Mary Riley bought the house for a reported $35,000. The Rileys lived at the house, number 112 Ocean Avenue, for a little under five years. They had marital problems and they were divorced. They sold the house to Louise and Ronald DeFeo Senior on the 28th of June 1965. The DeFeos lived there for over nine years with their five children but all that was to change on the 13th of November, 1974. The 13th of November, 1974, was a Wednesday, and Ronald DeFeo Jr., who was known as Butch, and the oldest of the DeFeo children at 23, went to work. After work, he popped into Henry's Bar in Amityville and had a drink. He tried calling home several times, telling anyone who'd listen that his family weren't answering the phone. He went home, but then at about 6 30 pm, he returned to the bar in a state and shouted out, You've got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. He returned to his home along with a small group of people from the bar, and they found that sadly Ronald Jr. was right. His parents, as well as all four of his siblings, two sisters and two brothers, were all dead in their beds. One of the group, a man called Joe Yeswit, called the Suffolk County Police and between 7pm and 8pm, law enforcement arrived and secured the crime scene. By midnight, the bodies of the six victims were removed from the house, and autopsies were underway by 1am. The victims were Ronald Junior's parents, his father, Ronald Senior, who was just three days away from his 44th birthday, and his mother Louise, who was 42. His sisters, Dawn, who was 18, and Alison, who was 13. ...in his two little brothers, Mark who was 12 and John Matthew who was only nine years old. DeFeo Jr. was taken into police custody for his own protection. This was after he suggested to police that the killings may have been carried out by a mob hitman called Louis Fellini. When the police started to piece together the crime, things didn't quite add up. They established that his parents were killed first, having both been shot twice while all four of his siblings were killed with single shots. All six were lying face down in their own beds at the time they were murdered. The weapon was determined to have been a 35 caliber rifle. The time of death was around 3.15am and this meant that they had all been dead when DeFeo Jr. had left for work that morning. The mobster that Ronald DeFeo Jr. had said was behind the killings Louis Fellini had an alibi. He wasn't in the state of New York at the time. It was at this point that Ronald DeFeo Jr. admitted that it was he who had killed his mother, his father and all four of his brothers and sisters. He admitted that he'd shot all six of them in the back at around 3.15am with a 35 caliber Marling 336 hunting rifle. He then said he'd taken a shower disposed of the weapon and his clothes that were soaked in the blood of his own family members, and then left for work as usual. He told the police where he could find the clothes, the rifle, and the cartridges he had used to commit the murders. These were all recovered shortly afterwards. On Monday, the 18th of November, 1974, it's in St Charles Cemetery in Farmingdale. The trial of Ronald DeFeo Jr. started on October the 14th, 1975, his defence lawyer, William Webber, mounted an affirmative defence of insanity. DeFeo Jr. claimed he had killed his family in self-defence because he had heard their voices plotting against him. Reportedly, he set a trial. As far as I'm concerned, if I didn't kill my family, they were going to kill me. And as far as I'm concerned, what I did was self-defence and there was nothing wrong with it. When I got a gun in my hand, there's no doubt in my mind who I am. I am God. The insanity plea was supported by the psychiatrist for the defence, Dr. Daniel Schwartz. The psychiatrist for the prosecution, Dr. Harold Zolan, maintained that although Ronald Jr. was an abuser of LSD and heroin, and he also had antisocial personality disorder, he was completely and utterly aware of his actions at the time of the crime. Ronald DeFeo Jr. had grown up with an abusive father and a passive mother, ...and his troubled childhood contributed to his reliance on substances as an adult. He not only lashed out at his father, but he once even threatened him with a gun. His parents hoped that letting him live at home and helping him out with money when they could would help him. As he, their eldest son, struggled to hold down a job. But ultimately, it would result in tragedy and the loss of six innocent young lives. On the subject of motive, it was suggested that the murders may have been financially motivated as the first police officers on the scene reported that he'd asked how to collect his father's life insurance policy. On November the 21st, 1975, Ronald DeFeo Jr. was found guilty of six counts of second-degree murder. The judge, Thomas Stark, sentenced him to six concurrent life sentences of 25 years to life, saying that the crimes were the most heinous and abhorrent. DeFeo Jr. was housed at the Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, New York, where he remained until his death on March the 12th, 2021, at the age of 69. The DeFeo house at 112 Ocean Avenue remained empty for 13 months following the murders. It was then that George and Kathy Lutz, a couple in their thirties, bought the property for a hugely reduced $80,000. It really was a steal for the five bedroom home, which was named High Hopes. It had a swimming pool, and a boathouse as it was located on a canal. They'd been made aware of the murders by the real estate broker tasked with selling the home, and after discussing it, the Lutzes agreed this wouldn't be a problem for them. They also agreed a fee of $400 for the DeFeo furniture, including beds, which had been left at the property. They moved in on December the 18th 1975 with their three children, that Kathy had from a previous marriage. Daniel, who was nine, Christopher, who was seven, and Melissa, who they called Missy, who was five. They also had a crossbreed Malamute Labrador dog named Harry. After just 28 days, they moved out. They hadn't even made a payment on their mortgage yet. On the 30th of August 1976, they returned the house to Columbia Savings and Loan. The Lutzers had good reason for moving out, and we'll get into this in great detail shortly as we look at these two pivotal characters in the story of the Amityville Horror House. On March 18th 1977, the same year that Jay Anson's book named The Amityville Horror A True Story went on sale, Jim and Barbara Cromartie, the owners of Riverhead Raceway, purchased the home from the bank for $55,000. By the end of this year, the house was famous the world over because of the murders, the happenings during the Lutzer's brief stay, and the hit book, which was followed by a movie in 1979 starring James Brolin and Margaret Kidder. The Cromarties were plagued by visitors desperate to get a look at the notorious house. It became such a problem that they changed the address from 112 Ocean Avenue to 108. This was in an effort to throw off these ghoulish unwelcomed guests who lined up outside the house to take photos. The house remains number 108 to this day. At one point, the hordes of tourists became unbearable, so the Cromarties moved out, putting the house up for sale and leaving a family friend named Frank Birch to look after the place while they were away. The house didn't sell, so the Cromarties moved back in. In 1987, Barbara's son David Roskin passed away, and the Cromarties once again moved out of 108 Ocean Avenue, this time for good. The house was purchased by Jean and Peter O'Neill on August 17, 1987 and they made some changes including filling in the swimming pool and changing the iconic eye windows to more traditional square ones. A decade later the house was sold again to Brian Wilson not the one from the Beach Boys for around $310,000. He made further changes including adding a sunroom. The most recent sale of the house came in 2017 when it was bought for $605,000. The house is most arguably the most famous haunted house on the planet, and this is mostly due to the 28 days the Lutz family lived there. Let's look at what happened to cause them to flee after such a short period of time. Despite there previously being no known paranormal activity in the house, from the moment the Lutz has moved in, terrifying occurrences began. First there were the flies, a plague of them, even in December. As the family unpacked their belongings, they were covered in thousands of flies which seemed to come from nowhere. A priest, Father Pecoraro, visited the house on the 18th of December to perform a blessing for the tragic victims who'd lived and been murdered there so recently. When blessing one of the bedrooms, he allegedly heard a voice scream, Get out. He didn't say anything at the time but he called the Lutters on Christmas Eve to warn them to never sleep in that particular room. Some reports say that the priest would develop blisters on his hands and have a fever shortly after leaving the house. At first, the happenings were only minor, such as objects moving and strange stenches. But then, whoever or whatever was haunting the house became more violent. On one occasion, the family were in the kitchen when a sharp knife was thrown across the room. The Lutzers reported that apparitions began appearing and members of the family suddenly experienced violent mood changes seemingly out of character and for no reason. The house just wouldn't get warm. It was always cold. The garage door opened and slammed closed on its own all the time and the Lutz children stood watching it, unable to believe their eyes. The family dog, Harry, was seen trying to hang himself by his lead. George would wake up nightly to the sound of the front door slamming. He would race downstairs to find the dog sleeping soundly at the front door. Nobody else would hear the sound, although he would say it was loud enough to wake the whole house. He would also wake every night at 3.15am, the very time that the DeFeo family were being murdered in their beds. And the worst was still to come. The spirits began to physically harm the family, Mysterious scratches appeared on family members' bodies. The Lutzers once again attempt to have the house blessed. When the priest attempt to cleanse the spirits haunting the family day and night, a chorus of disembodied voices rang out around the house saying, Will you stop? Green slime oozed from the walls and out of keyholes. Then there were the cold spots in the rooms and hallways, so cold that they could see their breath, and their teeth would start to chatter. A crucifix hanging on a wall was found to have turned itself upside down. A sculpted lion came to life and bit George. George discovered a hidden red room in the basement. It was a small room, around four foot by five foot, painted entirely in red, that he discovered behind shelving. This room wasn't mentioned in the building plans, and hadn't been mentioned at all by the real estate agent. But the Lutzer's dog, Harry, refused to go near it, cowering and whimpering in fear. Unseen hands would rip doors from hinges, damaging locks, doors and windows, and it would slam cabinets closed. The horrendous smells got worse, with smells ranging from cheap perfume and the smell of excrement. While tending to the fire, George and Cathy saw the image of a demon with half his head blown out. It was burned into the soot at the back of the fireplace. Famously, the Lutz's five-year-old daughter Missy developed an imaginary friend called Jody, a demonic pig-like creature with glowing red eyes. It's not unusual for children to have imaginary friends, even though this one seems particularly dark for an innocent child of five to have dreamt up. Her parents began to wonder if this was just an imaginary friend, as on January the 1st, 1976, cloven hoof prints of an enormous pig appeared in the snow outside the house. And then, a pig-like creature with red eyes was seen in an upstairs window staring down at George and his stepson, Daniel. George saw Kathy transform into an old woman of around 90. He described her as having wild hair, shocking white, the face of a mass of wrinkles and ugly lines, and saliva dripping from a toothless mouth. George woke up on what turned out to be their final night in the house and was horrified to find Kathy levitating two feet above the bed while she slept. At the same time, their sons Christopher and Daniel both woke to find themselves levitating together in their beds. The bedroom they shared just happened to be the former bedroom of Ronald DeFeo Jr. On January the 14th 1976, 28 days after they moved into their dream home, it all became too much and the Lutz fled the house, with nothing more than the clothes they were wearing. And they moved in with Cathy's mother in Deer Park, New York, arranging for a removal company to go into the damned house and send their possessions onto them. Shortly after they left the home at 112 Ocean Avenue, Dr. Stephen Kaplan, a self styled vampirologist and ghost hunter, was called in to investigate the house. According to Kaplan, on February the 16th, 1976, shortly after the Lutzes abandoned the home, Kaplan received a phone call from George Lutz. At the time, Kaplan was the executive director of the Parapsychology Institute of America, based on Long Island, and he was a frequent guest on the WBAB radio programme Spectrum with Joel Martin. Lutz requested that Kaplan and his associates at the Parapsychology Institute investigate the home. As Kaplan recalled in his account of the incident in a book he would later write about the events, this initial conversation immediately aroused his suspicions, ...as to the validity of George Lutz's claims that the house was haunted. Kaplan claims Lutz asked about a fee for the group's services. And Kaplan told him that they did not charge for the investigation... ...but that if the story is a hoax, the public will know. Shortly afterwards, Lutz contacted him and called off the investigation. This led to Kaplan and the Lutz's falling out. And Kaplan went on to write a book published in 1995 with his wife Roxanne Salch Kaplan the Amityville Horror Conspiracy. The Lutzers instead turned to demonologists and paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren, a husband and wife team who would famously go on to investigate the Enfield poltergeist the following year. The Warrens and their small team were accompanied by television station Channel 5 New York, including the news anchorman Marvin Scott, radio reporter Michael Linder from WNEWFM, a professor from Duke University, and the president of the American Society for Psychic Research. In total, nine people spent the night of the 6th of March 1976 in the house. The Warrens would claim, having researched the property, that the land upon which the house was built had once been a place where Native Americans who were sick were brought to die. They were housed here until they passed, and their bodies were buried on the site in unmarked graves. The Warrens reported that their time in the Amityville house was horrifying. Lorraine, who claimed to be able to receive visual and audio messages from spirits, said that she was receiving messages constantly when in the house about the terrible things that had occurred there. She admitted that she was frightened before even entering the house. Ed headed down to the cellar and was pushed and pulled by what he described as shadows. Then one of these shadows attempted to lift him off the ground and he knew at that moment that there was something evil at 112 Ocean Avenue. Marvin Scott, the Channel 5 man, went into one of the bedrooms with Lorraine. The bedroom that had most recently belonged to five-year-old Missy Lutz. Marvin said to Lorraine upon entering, I hope this is as close to hell as I ever get. Lorraine claimed immediately that she knew that the furniture in there hadn't been replaced, and five-year-old Missy had been sleeping in the very bed in which one of the DeFeo children had been murdered. In the master bedroom, one wall was all mirrors. Lorraine sat on the bed where the DeFeo parents had been shot. The bed frame was the same, only the blood-soaked mattress had been replaced. All nine present felt the same as they explored the rooms. They all felt this was a horrible place, and each room seemed even more horrible than the previous one. The most famous evidence of this night came in the form of a time-lapse photograph taken by professional photographer Gene Campbell. During the investigation, he'd set up an automatic camera that took infrared pictures to capture the second floor landing during the night. Equipped with black and white film, his camera captured a photograph of what appears to be a young boy stood at the foot of a staircase. He is described as a demon, due to having what looked to be glowing eyes. This photo wasn't seen by anybody until 1979, three years after the investigation, when the Lutters appeared on the Merv Griffin talk show to promote the release of the Amityville horror movie based on the 1977 hit book. You can see this photograph on the Instagram at howhauntedpod. Eventually everyone gathered downstairs, and Lorraine was asked to do something she knew she'd be asked to do as a resident psychic, but something she didn't want to do. She was asked to make contact with the spirits of the house and find out who was there, why they were there and what had really happened right there in that house. It was reported that while she was making contact the professor from Duke University passed out cold from fright and two others complained of heart palpitations and had to have a lie down. They all left at 1am and experienced investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren were so badly shaken up by the effects the house had had on them that they vowed they would never go back into that house again. The Warrens weren't the only paranormal investigators to spend time at the house following the Lutzer's rapid departure, as in January 1977, Hans Holzer, an Austrian-American author and parapsychologist, and spiritual medium Ethel Myers, entered 112 Ocean Avenue. Myers claimed that the house had been built over an ancient Native American burial ground, and that the angry spirit of a Shinnecock Indian chief called Roland Thunder had possessed the previous occupant Ronald DeFeo Jr., driving him to murder his family. Photographs taken at the scene revealed curious anomalies, such as the halos which appeared in the supposed images of bullet marks made in the original 1974 murders. The claim that the house was built on Native American sacred land was debunked by the local Amityville Historical Society, and it was pointed out that it was the Montaukert Indians, and not the Shinnycocks who'd been the original settlers in the area. Despite this, Hans Holzer would go on to write extensive published works on the haunted house in Amityville. A couple of months after this investigation, the Cromarties would move in, and then in September 1977, the Amityville Horror, A True Story was published. Jay Anson, the author, suffered a heart attack, which he would recover from while writing the final chapter. So if we're asking the question how haunted, the answer has to be very, very haunted, right? Well, almost immediately following the publication of the book, accusations that the whole thing was nothing more than a hoax were aimed at Jay Anson and the Lutz family. There are a number of reasons why this is the case, which we'll look at in a moment, but the real challenge now with the Lutz's versions of events is that there's been four subsequent owners in the 48 years since they fled the house, and not one of them has ever reported any kind of paranormal activity whatsoever. James Cromarty, who bought the house in 1977 and lived there with his wife Barbara for 10 years, commented, nothing weird ever happened, except for people coming by because of the book and the movie. The local residents and authorities in Amityville have always been unhappy with the attention that the Amityville Horror brings to the town and generally decline requests to discuss it publicly. The website of the Amityville Historical Society makes no mention of the 1974 murders or the period that the Lutz family lived at 112 Ocean Avenue and the subsequent fallout. The History Channel made a documentary about the Amityville Horror in 2000, and the Historical Society refused to take part when approached. In the 2005 documentary, The Real Amityville Horror, Rufus Island, who was a neighbor of the DeFeo's, and who lived there all of his life until his passing in 2008, said that there were busloads of people visiting daily. Even in the worst thunderstorms, there'd be 50 or so people lined up in the street outside the house taking photographs. He found people having picnics in his back garden, and even nuns from Sweden who had driven down his driveway and then got stuck there. Another resident talked about how people would run into the garden of the famous house, ripping up pieces of the lawn, ripping off pieces of the siding of the house, desperate for a souvenir they could take home from the horror house. Some could argue that given the unwanted attention and the visitors to the house, coming out and reporting any kind of scary happenings would simply add fuel to the fire. Or, it could be as simple as it seems. Nothing out of the ordinary has happened. No demonic pig monsters, no oozing slime, no spooky voices demanding people to leave. Nothing. Let's look at some of the hoax rumours, and the contradictions in the story that the Lutzes told that came out in the early days. It is believed that the scepticism began with claims made by Dr. Stephen Kaplan, but he wasn't the only one to quickly come forward and cast doubts on the versions of events portrayed in the new best-selling book. Details emerged in the press that George Lutz, a land surveyor, couldn't really afford the house, even at its knockdown price of $80,000 so likely left the property as quickly as he did for financial reasons rather than supernatural ones. It was argued that George Lutz had a fascination with the paranormal, but the couple had severe debts. George in particular from a failing business, leading sceptics to believe that the incredible, some would say unbelievable, stories told by the Lutzers were invented in order to have a story to sell to the media, who still had a morbid interest in 112 Ocean Avenue due to the murders which had happened only a year earlier. The claims of physical damage to the locks, doors and windows were rejected by Jim and Barbara Cromartie, who had lived there next. Barbara Cromartie argued that they appeared to be the original items and had not been repaired. The Cromartys went on to talk about the Red Room and explained that there was nothing special about it. It was merely a small closet in the basement and would have been known to the previous owners of the house because it was not concealed in any way. A claim made in chapter 11 of the book says that the Amityville Historical Society told George and Kathy that their property was on or near land the Shinnecock Indian Nation had used as an enclosure for the sick, mad and dying, but that the tribe hadn't buried anyone there because the property was infested with demons. According to journalists Alec Dresler and Jim Scoville writing for Newsday newspaper, the Amityville Historical Society's curator was approached for comment, and dismissed this supposed fact, going on to say that the society held no information on the Ocean Drive property and that the Shinnecock tribe had no ties whatsoever to the Amityville area. A number of researchers fact-checked claims made by the Lutzers and Ansons book and found literally hundreds of inaccuracies. For example, Rick Moran and Peter Jordan looked at the claim that Jody the demonic pig had left hoof prints in the snow on the 1st of January 1976, and they quickly found out that there'd be no snowfall in or around Amityville at any time around that date. In both the book and the movie based on the book, police officers are depicted as visiting the house, but records showed that the Lutzers did not call the police at all during the 28-day period that they were living on Ocean Avenue. Following the movie's release, one of the most damning testimonies against the Lutzers' versions of events was printed in the September 17, 1979 issue of People magazine. William Weber who had been Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s defence lawyer, was quoted as saying, I know this book is a hoax. We created this horror story over many bottles of wine. This refers to a meeting that Weber is said to have had with George and Kathy Lutz, during which they discussed what would later become the outline of Anson's book. Weber also claimed that he passed detailed information about the murders to the couple, who then weaved them into their fantasy account. For instance, the neighbour's cat became a pig like demon that left cloven hoofprints in the snow. More and more claims, both big and small, were made that poked holes in the story told by the Lutzers, by researchers, eyewitnesses, and forensic evidence. But the Lutzers stuck to their story time and time again. They even took legal action in May 1977, when they filed a lawsuit against William Weber, who had claimed to make it all up with them, Paul Hoffman, who was a writer working on an account of the hauntings, Bernard Burton and Frederick Mars, who were both alleged clairvoyants who had examined the house, along with Good Housekeeping Magazine, the New York Sunday News, and the Hearst Corporation. The Lutzers alleged misappropriation of names for trade purposes, invasion of privacy, and mental distress, and sought damages of $4.5 million. This case came about when William Webber had sent a book contract to the Lutzers in March of 1976. His proposal was that they form a company which would write a book all about the horror at the house in Amityville. The Hoffman, Weber, Burton and Mars Corporation, HWBM, would see Weber himself, Frederick Mars and Bernard Burton, and Kathy and George Lutz each receive 12% of any earnings of HWBM. Since Paul Hoffman was the writer of the book, he would receive the larger share, 40%. The Lutzes didn't agree to this proposal, as they felt the 12% offer to them was unfavourable. Instead, they went to author Jay Hansen, who would go on to write the Amityville Horror a true story, as they felt this would make a better deal for them financially. In reality, it's been reported that the Lutzes made around $300,000 from the Amityville Horror. This is still an enormous sum of money, and certainly motivation to conspire to create an elaborate hoax but the book and rights to the movie made millions. Nevertheless, even though the contract was not in place for Paul Hoffman to write the proposed book, this did not stop him from selling two articles about the Lutzer's experience, both of which were almost identical. The first article appeared in an issue of New York Sunday News on July 18th, 1976, titled Life in a Haunted House. The second was titled Our Dream House Was Haunted, and appear in the April 1977 edition of Good Housekeeping magazine. The Lutters received no money from these two publications, and this was the cause of the legal battle. In a counterclaim, Hoffman, Weber and Burton each filed against the Lutters for $2 million, citing that they had perpetrated a fraud and had breached their contract. Judge Jacob Mishler dismissed the claim against Good Housekeeping, New York Sunday News and the Hearst Corporation, because there were no invasion of privacy issues and because the plaintiffs had failed to state a claim upon which relief could be granted to them. Judge Mishler, however, eventually handed the case over to Judge Jack B. Weinstein. When the trial began, Judge Weinstein, who was known to be a no-nonsense judge, presided over the case in his Brooklyn U.S. District Court. Father Ray Pecorero, who was called Father Mancuso in the book, and who was asked to have blessed the house while covered in flies, and clearly heard a voice say, get out, was asked to give evidence during the trial. And he testified under oath that the only contact he'd had with the Lutzers had been in a telephone call, and he'd never visited the house. On September 10th, 1979, Judge Weinstein dismissed the rest of the Lutzers' lawsuit and allowed the defendant's counterclaim to continue. He said... Based on what I have heard, it appears to me that to a large extent the book is a work of fiction, relying in large part upon the suggestions of Mr. Weber. The next day the counterclaim was settled and the entire case was dismissed. In contrast to the Weber and Lutzer's version of events around the idea for the book, Ronald DeFeo Jr. has a different take on what happened. He told Ryan Katzenbach in an interview in 2014, that he actually knew the Lutzers before he committed the murders. He even claimed that they'd call him up from time to time and he'd take Kathy Lutz to get cocaine. He went on to say that Weber and the Lutzers got together, confirming the many bottles of wine meeting, where the story of the Amityville Horror was made up. Weber contacted DeFeo Jr. and told him the plan. But DeFeo Jr. said he would not go along with it at all. So Webber headed to see DeFeo Jr. And a deal was made which would see the prisoner paid $850,000 to sign a release. DeFeo Jr. then said the Lutzers double-crossed everyone and he never received any money whatsoever. The author, J. Hansen, was asked in almost every interview he gave to promote his book whether he believed that his true story was exactly that. He never said he did. He would explain that he based his book on around 35 hours of audio recordings given to him by George Lutz, plus about five hours of interviews he conducted to get the timeline right. Whenever the inevitable question was put to him, he would give an answer along the lines of, I have no idea whether the book is true or not, but I am sure that the Lutzers believe what they told me to be true. J. Hansen died on March 12, 1980, following heart surgery, only three years after The Amityville Horror was published. He was 58 years old. That autumn his second novel, 666, which was also about a haunted house, was released. In a 2009 interview with White Noise Paranormal Radio, Rick Moran, who'd been picking holes in the Lutzer story from day one, claimed that Anson more or less admitted him in the late 70s that the book was essentially a work of fiction. What about the demon child photo taken during the Warrens' investigation of the Amityville house? arguably the most famous ghost photograph of all time. That has to be pretty compelling evidence for the fact that there's something not quite right about this house. Okay, so, the first time I ever saw this photograph and I remember it vividly, I got chills. Every hair on my body stood on end and there was no doubt about it in my probably 10 or 11 year old mind. I was staring at the face of one of the murdered DeFeo children. I couldn't shift the image of those glowing eyes from my mind. They kept me awake at night. I was genuinely frightened by it. However, if you look at the photo now using the much more advanced means we have in the year 2023, even just being able to zoom in on a laptop, tablet, or mobile phone, you can see quite clearly that these demonic looking eyes appear to be glowing due to whoever it is wearing a pair of glasses. I've added in zoomed in photographs to the Instagram and it's plain to see. Not only that, but it doesn't appear to be a young boy at all. It could easily be a man. There's now a theory that this was Paul Bartz. Bartz was one of the investigators helping the warren that night, and he wore glasses. There's a photo of Paul Bartz over on the Instagram, so you can compare the two. Despite it seeming that this photo can now most likely be debunked, there are still people who are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that this photo is a ghost. Let me know what you think. George and Kathy Lutz divorced in 1988 and both have since passed away. Kathy died of emphysema in 2004 and George died of heart disease in 2006. In later years, Kathy was largely quiet on the matter of the hauntings she claimed to endure at the Amityville Horror House. But George Lutz spoke regularly on the subject right up until his death. And he always maintained that events in the book were, and I quote, mostly true, He did concede, though, that some of the details had been exaggerated, such as the famous green slime oozing out of the walls. George Lutz pretty much made his living from the events of December 1975 and January 1976 right up until his death. He even registered the phrase the Amityville Horror as a trademark in 2002 and referred to the Amityville Horror TM on his official website. Following the 2005 remake of the movie, starring Ryan Reynolds and Melissa George, Lutz was furious that the makers of the film did not involve him in any of the discussions and used his name without his permission. He spoke about it publicly in interviews before his death the following year. Now that we've looked at the evidence that points to all of this being nothing more than a hoax conjured up by the Lutzes to cash in on the tragic murders of six innocent people, it's only fair that we look at anything that might back up their claims and might point to the house genuinely being haunted or at least some aspects of this fantastical tale being plausible. We can't dismiss everything George and Kathy Lutz said, and in turn Anson wrote, because some aspects such as the green slime or the demon photo may not necessarily be true. In June 1979, George and Kathy Lutz agreed to take a polygraph test to prove that they were telling the truth relating to their experiences at the house. The polygraph tests were performed by Chris Gugas and Michael Rice, who at the time were reportedly among the top five polygraph experts in America, The results, in Rice's opinion, did not indicate lying. Father Ray Pecoraro, who had testified under oath that he had never blessed the house, and had only ever spoken to George Lutz on the telephone, appeared in Silhouette on October 4th, 1979, on an episode of Season 4 of a television programme called In Search Of, which was a weekly show devoted to mysterious phenomena. And what he said completely contradicted what he had said in the court case in September of that same year, while swearing on the Bible. i play the audio for you now in its entirety, so you can hear exactly what Father Pecoraro had to say. I was blessing um, the sewing room. It was cold, it was really cold in there. And I thought, gee, that's, this is peculiar. Because it was a lovely day out, and, and uh, it was winter, yes, but I, it didn't account for that kind of coldness. i I also sprinkling holy water. And I heard a, a rather deep voice uh, behind me saying, "Get out." It seemed so directed toward me that I was really quite startled. I felt a slap at one point on the face. I felt somebody slap me, and there was nobody there. What about those who came out and spoke out publicly against the Lutzes? Dr Stephen Kaplan said very early on that the whole thing was a hoax, and he would even write a book to back up his claims. Kaplan and the Warrens, who benefited from Kaplan not getting to investigate the house after apparently saying he would expose any hoax, butted heads publicly on the subject of the house for two decades. Kaplan is an interesting character, as he called himself Doctor, despite not appearing to hold any qualifications that would grant him such a title. He was also the president of the Parapsychology Society of Long Island, which it seems he may have founded himself. The Warrens and the Lutzers maintained that the reason Kaplan was so outspoken about the case at the property was that he was jealous that he missed out on the paranormal case of the 20th century, and the Warrens found huge fame because of their involvement. Ed Warren publicly offered Kaplan $5,000 to provide evidence of the hoax. Some sources claim that Kaplan said that he had photographs that would prove that this was all just a made-up story and that he had conducted his own investigation at the property and nothing happened. Kaplan declined to take Ed Warren up on his offer. Kaplan wrote his book The Amityville Conspiracy and one week before the book was published in 1995, he died from a heart attack. Somebody else who publicly spoke out about the Lutzers was the lawyer William Webber. He claimed that he'd made the entire thing up with them over many bottles of wine. It's been claimed, however, that the Lutzers didn't drink, and the only bottle of wine they actually had in the house was a bottle of blessed wine given to them as a gift by Father Pecoraro. Weber could have potentially borne a grudge, as he had hoped to have the book written by Paul Hoffman, which would have seen him receive 12% of the profits from the sales. ...which proved to far surpass anyone's expectations... ...and he'd have received money from the rights to the movie being sold. Instead, he received nothing. Of course, the only people who really know what happened during those 28 days... ...were the five people living there at the time. George and Kathy, who have both now passed away... ...and the three children, Daniel, Christopher and Missy. For over 30 years, the three shied away... But in more recent years both daniel and christopher have spoken extensively on their short time living at 112 ocean avenue missy hasn't spoken a word publicly about what happened in the near 50 years since and likely never will christopher who was seven at the time he lived in the house was the first to speak to the media now calling himself christopher quarantino he explained his name change in a 2012 interview for 30 odd minutes hosted by jeff bellinger he said that when he was in the military A sergeant got in his face saying he was just a big hoax... ...and calling his mother and stepfather liars. He'd had this all the way through school... ...and throughout his military career... ...and decided that he just didn't want to deal with it anymore. He went through the process of changing his name... ...so that when he left the military... ...people wouldn't associate his name with the book and the movies. And he said that unless somebody was a very, very close friend following that... ...he would never, ever bring up that part of his life. Growing up was tough for Christopher and he regularly clashed with George, his stepfather, and he moved away from the family to start a life of his own when he was just 16 years old. Since opening up on the subject, he's spoken to a variety of media sources, and you can read all of the interviews with him online, or you can watch hours of him speaking on YouTube. What he has to say on the matter is very similar in each interview, so let's look at the first time he ever talked about the Amityville Horror. He spoke with the Seattle Times in 2005, 30 years after the events and the year that the remake of the movie was released. He told the newspaper that the haunting was not a hoax but that his stepfather at the time George Lutz brought The Troubles on himself by dabbling in the occult and then fabricated all manner of paranormal incidents on top of what actually happened in order to profit off books and movies about the house. He said So far there's been three representations of what happened in that house, and not one of them, not the book, not the movie, nor the remake released last month, is accurate. Talking about his stepfather, George, he said, He's a professional showman, in my opinion. I just feel as though we're all being exploited. He said that George Lutz was extremely curious of everything paranormal, and he tried to summon supernatural beings by chanting. I don't know that I'd call it black magic, but it was a way to call up spirits. Some of the alleged incidents detailed in the Amityville Horror Book, such as unseen forces ripping the front doors from its hinges, never occurred. He said that he saw a definite spectral figure, as definite as a shadow, in the shape of a man that moved towards him, then dissolved away. Talking about George, he finished by saying, he points his finger at the house and says there's something evil there finger should be pointed at what he had done. He's a perpetrator and an instigator. Christopher's older brother, Daniel Lutz, has only spoken once publicly about the happenings at 112 Ocean Avenue, and that came in 2013, 37 years after fleeing the house as a nine-year-old. Much like his younger brother, he left home at an early age, heading to the southwest of America at just 15, where he lived homeless for a while. Today he's back in New York, he lives in Queens, where he's a skilled stonemason, and he has two grown-up children of his own, although he is separated from their mother, who was his wife. It seems likely that he would have never broken his silence, but a friend of his contacted Eric Walder, who had created a website all about the Amityville haunting, and was planning to release a documentary on the subject matter. Walter persuaded Daniel to take part in the project, and My Amityville Horror was released in 2013. It soon became clear that there was no love lost for his late stepfather, who he said would beat the children with a wooden spoon. He had the perfect opportunity to bury George Lutz's version of events. However, he was adamant that the hauntings really happened. He said that the house ruined his life, and he continues to have nightmares to this day. He said, I just wanted somebody to believe me, It has been in my dreams my whole life. Echoing claims made by his brother, he said, George's beliefs and practices triggered what was going on in the house. It was like magic trick gone bad that you couldn't shut off. He explained that even before they moved to Amityville, his stepfather had bookshelves full of books all about Satanism and black magic. Daniel even claimed to see George move a spanner using telekinesis. It clearly moved, but he didn't touch it. He just willed it to move with his mind. As soon as the family moved into the house, he felt something wasn't right. He took a box upstairs to their playroom, and when he entered the room, it was swarming with hundreds of flies. He killed a hundred or so, but they were still everywhere, so he went to find his mother. When she followed him to the room, all of the dead flies had disappeared. That's when my confusion started, he added. On another occasion, a window crashed down on his hand. Seemingly for no explainable reason... And his mother Cathy was treating it when what he describes as an invisible spirit entered the kitchen, knocking a knife and then sat down, joining them at the table, leaving an impression on the padded vinyl seat. He confirmed that the garage door had a mind of its own. He said, the entire family was standing there, watching the garage door slam up and slam down and slam up and slam down. He added that he still dreams of the family dog Harry, and I quote, going ballistic, almost throttling himself with his lead, trying to jump out of the outdoor pen as the garage door slammed open and closed. He told about one occurrence when he went with George to shut the garage door, and when they were walking back towards the house, they looked up at Missy's window, and saw what he described as a cartoon character of an angry pig, with wolf-like teeth and laser-beam red eyes. He added that he raced up to the room, and it was empty, but a rocking chair was rocking back and forth. Daniel, who shared a bedroom with his brother Christopher, claimed that on the final night in the house they shared a levitation experience while sleeping in their beds. We both woke up with our footboards smashing each other and banging off the ceiling, he said. Daniel has declined all subsequent interview requests and this is the only time he's ever spoken publicly on the subject so there can be no question that his desire to speak up and tell his version of events is motivated by money as he's not profited from the Amityville story at all. Eric Walter, the director of the documentary was asked for his thoughts on what Daniel had to say and he admitted that he's a sceptic but added that he doesn't believe a family would abandon everything and flee unless they were genuinely scared. He finished by saying that he thinks something paranormal may have occurred to the family but knowing that they were in a house where a mass murder occurred they fed into it by scaring themselves and of course later they saw how popular their story was and became more open to making money from it. On the subject of the murders, let's briefly revisit the tragic murders of the DeFeo's. Despite the police quickly arresting and charging DeFeo Jr., understandably given he confessed to the killing of all six of his family members, the more you look at the facts of what happened that night, the more apparent it is that something isn't quite right. I don't want to tread into true crime podcast territory, but there is a theory, albeit not a particularly popular one, that the evil spirits the Lutzers later encountered were present the night of the 13th of November, 1974, and they were to blame for the murders. Ronald DeFeo Jr. changed his story about what happened that night, many, many times while incarcerated. This in itself isn't unusual, considering he was facing the rest of his life in prison. In a 1986 interview for Newsday newspaper, he said that his 18-year-old sister Dawn had shot his father But then she was shot herself by his mother, who also killed his three other siblings, before DeFeo Jr. shot his mother. He said that he took the blame because he was afraid to say anything negative about his mother to her father, Michael Brigante Sr., who had actually bought the house for his daughter and her family back in 1965 as a present. And his father's uncle, Pete DeFeo, who was a member of a Genovese crime family, for fear that one or the other would kill him. In 1990 Ronald DeFeo Jr filed a 440 motion, which is a motion to have his conviction vacated. In support of this motion, DeFeo once again asserted that Dawn had been involved, this time aided by an unknown assailant who fled the house before he could get a good look at him. This mystery man killed their parents and Dawn subsequently killed their siblings. He claimed the only person he killed was Dawn and that it was by accident as they struggled over the rifle. The evidence proves that this isn't true, because Dawn was shot in her bed, lying face down. During a meeting on November the 30th in the year 2000, with Rick Asuna, author of The Night the DeFeos Died, Ronald Jr. said that along with his sister Dawn, he and one of his friends actually committed the murders out of desperation. This fact was confirmed by a letter written in his own handwriting, which said, It was cold-blooded murder, Period. No ghosts, no demons, just three people in which I was one. There were others who believed that DeFeo Jr. didn't act alone, and one of these was his grandfather, Louise's dad, Michael Brigante Sr. He hired Herman Race, who was a former New York City supervisor and Police Detective, to investigate the murders, to prove or disprove that his nephew, Ronald Jr., committed his horrendous crimes alone. Herman Race concluded that there were multiple gunmen and at least two different guns used during the murders. During a private court hearing and at the trial, Race's findings were corroborated by the prosecutor and the medical examiner, who were astonished that one man sat accused of being the sole gunman. As it transpired, Ronald DeFeo Jr. was never granted parole and he died in prison. But could he really have committed all six murders unaided that night? Ronald Senior, Louise, Dawn, Alison, Mark and John Matthew were all found dead in their beds, lying on their stomachs. The crime scene photos of the victims following their murders are, sadly, readily available online. There was no sign whatsoever of a struggle. The police investigation concluded that the Marlin 336 hunting rifle had not been fitted with any kind of sound suppressor and the autopsy and blood work showed that they hadn't been drugged or sedated in any way, and that all six were conscious at the time of their death. This is a very noisy rifle, yet Ronald Jr. walked from room to room, shooting his family as they all lay there on their stomachs, and didn't make any effort to escape their grisly end. Police confirmed that the bodies hadn't been moved following their murders, and this is how they were all positioned at the moment of their death. It could be argued that they were told at gunpoint to lie face down and they complied, especially with the parents being murdered first and the children far more likely to do what they were told when a gun is pointed at them and when they've just heard or potentially witnessed four shots being fired. This is very plausible, but for the fact that police believe that only Louise and Alison were awake at the time that they were killed. Another mysterious aspect of all six appearing to sleep on their stomachs was confirmed by a prosecutor during the trial. Mark DeFeo had suffered a painful sports injury which forced him to sleep on his back, yet he was sleeping face down. Police officers and the medical examiners were obviously puzzled by this factor, and considered that perhaps there were more than one person responsible for the murders. One account that I've read claims that the police said that the victims all lying face down, Not attempting to avoid their inevitable deaths gave the impression that they were being held down not from above, but from below. Let's take this supposed quote from the police with a pinch of salt. It appears likely to be an embellishment to strengthen the argument that there was something supernatural happening the night of the murders, long before the Lutzers moved in. However, what isn't up for debate is the fact that there's something very, very strange, dare I say inexplicable, about this aspect of the murders. Nobody has offered any explanation for how or why this happened, with the exception of the Warrens. Ed and Lorraine claim that the we were all in a state of phantomania. This isn't an actual recognized medical condition or event. Rather, it's a term that's been coined to refer to paralysis occurring when somebody is under attack from supernatural forces, also known as psychic paralysis. Another confusing aspect is that eight shots were fired, and despite the houses on the street only being about 40 feet apart, not a single neighbour heard any gunfire at all. It was a stormy night, but police have said that the 336 Marlin hunting rifle is sufficiently loud that it should have been clearly heard by nearby houses over the noise of the storm. As it transpires, the only noise reported by any neighbour at around 3.15, the time the DeFeos were being killed one by one, was the noise of the family dog bargain. Ronald Jr. has been quoted as saying he couldn't stop killing his family. On another occasion he said, there was a shadow ghost alongside me during the killing, which compelled me to shoot my family. And there are some that do believe that there may be much more to what happened that night, despite Ronald Jr. being on drugs at the time, that he was actually possessed by a demon, or he was in the presence of some kind of evil entity who made him do it. Almost 50 years on from the murders and the alleged paranormal activity which sent the Lutzes fleeing in terror, the huge interest in the Amityville Horror House shows no sign of slowing down. Jay Anson's book, The Amityville Horror, A True Story, is estimated to have sold around 10 million copies since it was first published in 1977. The 1979 movie set independent movie records at the time, and there are now been close to 30 horror movies made about Amityville. It's a case which has embedded itself in the consciousness of those with an interest in the paranormal, and for good reason. But now that you've heard all about the alleged occurrences on both sides of the story, do you think that the house, which is now at 108 Ocean Avenue, could really be haunted? Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. One thing that can't be debated is that a lot of people made a lot of money from what was said to have happened at this house. But there were a large number of victims here, the residents of Ocean Avenue, whose life would never be the same again due to their previously peaceful street becoming a must see tourist destination. The Lutz children, who were thrust into the public eye at such a young age due to the actions of their parents, regardless of whether they were telling the truth or not about what happened during those 28 days and nights. And of course, the Defeos Ronald Sr., Louise, Dawn, Alison, Mark, and John Matthew who all had their lives taken away from them needlessly at such a young age. And they have never been allowed to rest in peace, as crime scene photos of their lifeless bodies lying in their beds where they were shot and killed have been leaked and are posted all over the internet. And their murders were potentially capitalised on by greedy people looking to make some easy money by inventing ghost stories said to have happened inside the scary murder house of Amityville. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at, at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod where you will see photos galore relating to the Amityville Horror House. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com Feedback, location, suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like, and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to episodes, you can join the Patreon for less than the price of a pint. And you'll also get exclusive episodes where you'll join me on an actual paranormal investigation and hear the audio as it happened. There's five episodes of this nature waiting for you right now. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to the podcast... Why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee? All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast description and over on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out, we return to the UK and we head back to York and look at a location I investigated in October 2011 a 15th century building on the River Ouse, which has been used for important meetings and host and royal visitors, such as King Richard III and Prince Albert, as well as a court of justice where people were sentenced to death. The building is said to be haunted by a large man-shaped figure whose heavy footsteps are regularly heard, ghostly monks, and even the gunpowder plotter Guy Fawkes. But would any of them make an appearance when I spent some time there after dark? Let's find out together next week when we turn our attention to the York Guildhall. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time, when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted?